obedience produces opportunities. And I believe that that is the primary focus of this passage this morning as we look at it together. It is a great principle that all of us should understand. It is obedience that is the pathway to greater effectiveness for the Lord. Every one of us ought to want to be able to have more opportunities to do what God wants us to do. And, and, and the pathway to that is our obedience to do what we know we ought to do. My wife, just recently we encountered a situation with some friends of ours and, and she said, you know, I know what I should have done or would have done, should have done, but I'm not sure that's what I would have done. You, you know, our, our problem this morning, especially when I'm talking to you as Bible college students, our, our problem this morning is not knowledge and understanding. We know. We may understand or may not understand. Our, our difficulty is doing. And, and it's our obedience that produces opportunities. When I was a children's pastor on our staff back in the early 80s, we used to sing a song. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands. Doing it happily. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. As we think about that truth this morning, obedience produces opportunities. I want you to see three segments of our text that's before us here in John chapter 4. First of all, I want you to notice with me the meeting. In the opening verses that we have just read together, verses 1 through 7, we find Jesus leaving Judea because he realized his presence there was causing a controversy. The Pharisees had delighted always in creating a controversy around the life of our Lord. Uh, they were looking a way to bring division between him and John. Can I just say to all of us this morning, you and I should never want to be part of an unnecessary division. I understand that there are things we divide over. We divide over cardinal doctrine. We divide over the truth of the scriptures. But, but, but oh, how often we get in the midst of some controversy or conflict and we delight in taking a side. It's interesting to me here that the Lord Jesus did not stay but left because he wanted no part in providing a basis for the controversy. So he left. The word left there is a strong word. It means to abandon something, to leave it to itself. He left Judea. He departed unto Galilee. And he goes there, why? Verse four, verse four, read it out loud together with me. You ready? And he must needs go through Samaria. Why did he have to go there? Obedience to the Father's will. Now, most of us probably realize that Samaria was that despised part of the, of the nation of, of Israel Judea, the southernmost province, Galilee, the northernmost province. In the middle was Samaria. Uh, an Orthodox Jew, in order not to be contaminated with the Samaritans, would, would, would cross the Jordan River two times not to go through there. But, but Jesus knew that the Father had a divine appointment for him in Samaria. And his obedience 
to the Lord's and to, to the Father's will would allow him the opportunity to meet a lady there who needed to know him. You know, the best pathway of life is obedience to the Father's will. I, I, I want to know what God's will is, and I want to do it. I, I, I've been a Christian almost 54 years. In just a few days, it'll be 54 years ago, I trusted Jesus as my Savior. I've been preaching. September the 29th uh, will be my 50th year preaching my very first sermon. And, and, and all these years, I, I've wanted to know God's will and do God's will. I remember sitting with you. How many of you are seniors this year? You're a senior, you're a graduating senior, all right? I remember sitting where you're sitting and thinking, what do, what do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? And I, I thought the Lord had opened this opportunity. I was so excited. I was going as pastor offered me. We, we were all set on going. We came to the end of March, my senior year. He calls me and he says, um, well, Raven, I hate to tell you this, but I, I'm not gonna be able to bring you in on my staff. We've got a need, and I won't give you the long story, but long story short is, here I am, the end of March, no next step for sure. Wow. Sharon and I be, had been praying, but we really began to pray earnestly then. We'd been praying about where we were going, then we'd been praying, we began to pray, where should we go? We began to take a little time, fast maybe one day a week, and I got 10 days of graduation. And I got a call. On the other end of the phone was Pastor Randy Cox from Raleigh, North Carolina. And he said, Tim, I've been given your name. I was in college with his, with his son. He said, I've been given your name. I need a, need a staff member to come in and do my bus ministry and children's ministry and our soul winning outreach. Just wondered if you'd be interested. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> you know, I didn't back up. Yes, sir. He said, well, could you come down and look? And I said, yes, sir, when you want me to come? I said, I could have been there yesterday, but I'd only known. And uh, you know you know how it is when you're a senior and you don't know for sure. Over the next few days, I would know that's God's will for my life. And if you'd have told me that 43 years later, I'd still be at the same church and I would be the pastor, you could have knocked me over with a feather. But I tell you this, there is nothing better than knowing and pursuing the will of God. Jesus knew that the Father would have him go through Samaria to meet this woman in Sychar, uh, the ancient town of Shechem, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, 15 miles west of the Jordan River. And, and, and there Jesus finds this woman uh, who comes out of the city at the midday, which was not the normal hour, he is sitting on the well, weary and tired. We learn from later in the passage that his disciples have gone into the city to purchase and get them something to eat that they might be refreshed and able to go about their journey. So, so you see the meeting. Secondly, I want you to see the message. It's interesting that Jesus engages this woman. He gives to her a very simple request. He says to her in verse 7, give me to drink. The weariness of his travels had made him thirsty. But what Jesus was really, do was, was really doing was setting a stage for a spiritual reality. Now she protests. 
She, she says there in verse 9, how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaritan? First of all, men didn't speak to women out in public in those days. Second of all, you, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. She's a woman that honestly is filled with prejudice herself. But the amazing thing, she's speaking to the person who has no prejudice in his heart. And she says, why would you... Why would you dare ask me this? We, you know the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And, and, and verse 10, Jesus said, If thou knewest the gift of God, who it is that saith thee, give me a drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Jesus didn't answer her question. He directed her heart. What she needed was the gift of God and salvation. And he was going to use that physical water to explain the spiritual reality of her personal need. And so she looks at him and says to him in verse 11, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. The wells deep, whence hast thou that living water? Almost sarcastic, right? How are you going to give me some living water? You don't, you don't have an instrument to get any water. She said, are thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us a well and drank thereof himself, his children, his cattle? Jesus, interesting enough, doesn't reply to that question either. He says, whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He, he, he said, listen, ma'am, if, if, if you would allow me to, I could introduce you to a source of water from which you will never have to worry because the well will never, ever run dry. So she says, sir, give me this water. Thirst not, neither come to draw. And Jesus makes the next step. He says to her, go call your husband. We're going to have an extended conversation. Bring, bring your husband in on it. And interesting. He started talking about water, but now he's talking about wickedness. She says, I have no husband. She said, I can't call one. You know, when a person's saved, it's always preceded by an understanding of sinfulness. Nobody ever comes to know Christ that doesn't understand that they're bankrupt spiritually before God. So Jesus looks at her and said, you, you've spoken the truth. You've said, well... Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that thou saidest, and that saidest thou truly. And as soon as he revealed to her her need, her sin, her problem, he said, you spoke the truth. So she goes now to another step with him. Look at it in verse number 19. I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. He, she said, she said, she tried to divert Jesus from the subject. Let's, let's don't talk about my sin. You know, when you, when you often talk to people about the Lord, and you're giving the 
plan of salvation, the message of God, you know, they, they want to divert the, divert the conversation. She said, well, listen, I've got a really spiritual question to ask you. Where do we worship at? Do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship in Gerizim? Where, 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 where should we really be doing all this stuff you want to talk about? Jesus said, believe me, woman, the hour cometh when you'll neither in this mountain or yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You know not what you, you worship, you know not what. Ye, we know that we worship for salvations of the Jews. The hour cometh now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And she says, you know what? You're talking about Messiah. You're talking about the promised one. See, in her mixture of religion, she had enough understanding of God sending a Messiah, Shiloh, the one who would come and save and ransom his people. She said, could you tell me about him? She said, I know he's coming. Can you imagine her response when she heard Jesus? Look at verse 26. I that speak unto thee am he. Wow. She's face to face with the Savior. She's in conversation with the Messiah. God himself has visited her because he's obedient to his Father's will. I realize and understand that you and I are not God and thank God we're not God. Can you imagine if we were God? It'd be awful, wouldn't it, huh? I mean, if, if I was omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent, it'd be, it'd be horrible because I, I just wouldn't be able to handle that at all. But you know what we are in this world? We're a representative of God. We're a reflection of the Savior. She says, I, he says, I that speak unto thee am he. I'm him. So, so, you, so you see the meeting, you see the message. Here's where I really want to spend our time this morning. The mission. The mission. She, she without a doubt, believes on the Lord. And, and, and I want you to notice what she immediately embarks upon. She immediately embarks to tell others. Look, look, look at what she says in, in verse number, look what it says in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, the reason she came to the well, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Because she had believed on the Lord, because she had trusted Christ, because she had understood the reality of the message of salvation, she immediately went on a mission herself. You, you, know, you know what one of the true evidences of salvation is? It's our desire for other people to be saved. Every person who knows Christ wants someone else to know Christ. Scripture said, Romans chapter 10, verse 11, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Shall not be ashamed. I'm telling you this morning that because you and I know the 
Savior, because we understand the truths of God's Word, because we have full understanding of, of, our, of our personal salvation, then we have an obligation to go and tell others that we have found Him who is the living water. It's interesting who she went to, isn't it? Verse 28 at the end says, She saith to the men, those men that maybe she's been quite familiar with, those men whom she's been married to, five different men, that man whom she was living in adultery with at that moment, maybe other men that she had been immoral with. But when they saw her, hey, they saw a change in her countenance because when Jesus comes inside, it makes a difference on the outside. I just see her just exorbitant in joy. Come see a man. You won't believe this. And on the south side of town, the Messiah is sitting at the well. I don't really understand how we get excited about things that are less than eternal more than we get excited about things which are eternal. I don't know anything better than I was a sinner and now I'm saved. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, I now see. I was hell bound, I'm now heaven bound. Her testimony was so simple. Here's a man that's told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You say, well, was it successful? It was. Look at verse 30. Then they went out of the city. And came unto him. Up in verse 27, we're reminded that the disciples have gone and now they're coming back. Look at verse 27. And upon this came his disciples. While she's running into town, they're walking out of town. And they marveled that he was taught with a woman, yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? And so they get back, verse 31, and they say to him, Master, eat. Now notice the statement in verse 32. Jesus said, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. He said, fellas, while you've been on a physical errand for physical food, I've been involved in a spiritual errand, uh, errand about spiritual food. Fellas, I've been fulfilling the will of the Father. Fellas, I've been living in obedience. Though he's tired, though he's weary, though he's hungry. He had a greater passion than eating and drinking. He says it there in verse 34. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said, fellas, obedience produces opportunities. And if you and I will be obedient to the Lord, He'll give us more opportunities to share Him. Obedience. Being ready. Being prepared. Carrying a track in your pocket or your purse. Being ready. He said, my meat is to finish God's work. But then he makes a statement, and I want you to see it, verse 35. Say not ye, 
There are yet four months and then cometh harvest. I understand that was a pretty popular proverb of that day. It was, a, it was, a, it was emphasizing the need just to wait. That between seed time and harvest, it was a long time. But look at what Jesus says to them at the end of verse 35. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Now this is the way I picture it. Jesus has been sitting on the well. He and the woman have conversed. These disciples have come back. He's still sitting on the well. He's speaking to them about completing the work of the Father. And he says, look you on the fields. I just see him lift his hand back toward the city. And guess what's coming from the city? That woman and all those people with her. He said, fellas, just look on the fields. He said, the fields are white already to harvest. He said, guys, we're about to get in on the harvest. You know what? I guarantee you that when Peter, and particular Peter, but maybe others, James and John, and maybe, maybe Bartholomew or maybe Thomas, when, when, when Jesus had said, hey, we got to go through Samaria, they thought this, it's a waste of our time. There ain't nobody in Samaria interested in the salvation that's of the Jew. I guarantee you that in their own hearts and mind, they wondered why, why go through Samaria? This is why obedience produces opportunities. No doubt they thought no one there would listen to them. No one there would care for them. But the opposite was just true. Was, was true. The harvest was ready. The harvest just needed laborers. Can I say to you this morning that the harvest field of the world is ready. And there are people today just like this woman who are wondering is there an answer to the questions of life, death, and eternity. What God needs is someone just like us who will go and tell them. I love what Jesus taught the disciples here in verse 36. It says, He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. For here is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that upon which ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. The reality is when it comes to sowing and reaping and harvesting, we, we often get confused. May I say to you, there's not a person who's working in the harvest today that's not vital. Now, I honestly, if I had a choice, Brother Getch, between the sowing and the reaping, I choose the reaping. Everybody likes to be there when somebody places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But the reality is, one man soweth, another man watereth, and another man reapeth. But what Jesus teaches us so plainly here is that they all rejoice together. No matter what part I play in the harvest, I have a part. And I believe even at the judgment seat of Christ, I'll be rewarded for that part I play. 
God's not going to get us at the judgment seat and look at the notches on our belt as to how many people we prayed with. God's going to send us before the judgment seat of Christ and say, how many times were you faithful to share the gospel? How many times did you tell someone that they were a sinner in need of the Savior and that Jesus is just the Savior that they need? I love the way the psalmist put it in the 126th Psalm. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. He came to the city. She came to the well. They came to meet him. And Jesus says to those 12 men, I'm going to let you in on the harvest. Peter, you take those two. Thomas, you take those two. John, you grab those three right there. James, would you take those four right there? And, and let's just sit down with them and explain to them the wonderful works and word of God. Did it work? Verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. For the saying of the woman who which testified, he told me all things that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. He rode there two more days and many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. How did it happen? It began with the obedience of Jesus. It continued with the obedience of the woman. I wonder what it will be like at the judgment seat of Christ for this woman. I wonder how many crowns she'll have to lay at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Simply because as a newborn believer... She accepted the mission of God to go tell who she could tell about the one that she had met. Many years ago, I read the story of Francis Dixon. Dixon was a pastor in England in the last century. One day in his church, he asked a young man by the name of Peter to share his testimony. And the young man stood up and said, I was in the Royal Navy stationed in Sydney, Australia. I was walking down George Street when a little old white-haired man approached me and said, Excuse me, sir, I'd like to ask you a question. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? The Bible says it's heaven or hell. Think about it, would you please? That's all, sir, to do. After Peter got through sharing his testimony, Brother Dixon was in revival in the nation of England. A young man, Noah, was asked to give a testimony. Noel was asked to give a testimony one night. He stood and said, I was in the Royal Navy station in Sydney, Australia. I was walking down George Street one day when a little old white-haired man out of nowhere came up to me and said, Excuse me, sir. If you were to die today, where would you be in eternity? The Bible says it's heaven or hell. Think about it. Would you please? To do. He said, I was so burdened that when I got back to England, I, I found a pastor and I came to know Christ as my Savior. Dr. Dixon said, well, I have a young man in my church has that same testimony. Not long after that, Nick, uh, Dixon was preaching in Australia. He's preaching in, in Adelaide. He told the testimony of those two young men while he was speaking. A young, uh, 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 older gentleman stood up and said, uh, Sir, sir, 
I too was walking down the street in George Street in Sydney when that little old white-haired man approached me. Dr. Ed Dixon preached on the other side of Australia in Perfta. Shared that same story. And after the service, a deacon came up and said, Sir, I'm another convert of the little old man walking down on George Street. He got back to England, preached in a Bible conference in northern England, told the story. After the service, another man came to it and said, I too was walking down George Street and eventually was saved because of that little old man's questions. Sometime later, he was preaching in India. They asked him to preach on personal soul winning. He told the wonderful stories again. And a female missionary said, Dr. Dixon, I'm another convert. I was walking down George Street in Sydney, Australia. And, and, and I too began to think about salvation and trusted Christ. He was in Jamaica. He told the story and met another convert. He decided that he himself would go to Sydney the next time he was in Australia. The pastor he was with, he said, I want to know, do you know a little white-haired man that walks down George Street and asks people about eternity? He said, oh, yes. He said, that's Brother Jenner. He said, is Brother Jenner living? He said, yes, but he's in poor health. He is blind. He is homebound. Dr. Dixon said, would you, would you take me to see him? He said, sure. Dr. Francis Dixon said he walked into his house. He introduced himself. And he told of all the people around the world he'd met. Because of Mr. Jenner's witness, he trusted Christ. Mr. Jenner broke down. And began to weep. And he said, sir, that is the first time I've ever known of one convert. You know why? Because he is faithful doing what he could do on George Street. Mr. Jenner is a living, breathing illustration that obedience produces opportunities.